If you enjoy Champions for Children, be sure to check out the new podcast from Nemours Children's Health, Well Beyond Medicine. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts or at NemoursWellBeyond.org to continue hearing the stories of anything and everything related to the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. And now, the episode of Champions for Children you requested. Enjoy! Welcome to the Nemours Champions for Children COVID-19 podcast for January 21st, 2021. I'm Carol Vassar. It's been a year. One year ago this week, the first U.S. case of COVID-19 was diagnosed in Washington state. Today, unfortunately, the nation is looking at some very grim COVID-19 milestones, as host Dr. Jay Greenspan will talk about in his situational update. He'll also have a conversation with Sandy Gomberg, CEO of the COVID-19 response team for the city of Philadelphia. Sandy's a nurse by training and practice, a former hospital CEO, a former health system COO, a health educator, and even the leader of a health technology startup. She'll talk with Dr. Greenspan about the call she received last spring, requesting her experience, her leadership, in turning a 10,000-seat basketball arena into a temporary COVID-19 overflow hospital, and her work partnering with Genesis Healthcare, a nursing home operator in Pennsylvania and Delaware, to stand up a COVID-19 relief center for Philadelphia's most vulnerable residents. And she'll talk about why the eyes and hands of nurses are so important to COVID-19 relief efforts across the world. First, let's get that situational update from Nemours COVID-19 Incident Commander, Dr. Jay Greenspan. I'm going to give a very brief situational update. So we're talking about where we are in 120, 2021. A year ago was the first time a patient was identified on the West Coast with COVID. Who would have thought a year later we would have more than 400,000 deaths, more than 1,000 deaths a day, Certainly we're at 4,000 deaths a day often now, but who would have thought we would have had over 1,000 deaths a day over the year? And it certainly has shown in all parts of the country. The good news is that we're starting to see a slight decline, and I think we're hoping it's the light at the end of the tunnel. Lots to talk about with vaccine rollout and how we're doing, and of course, we have a new president as of today, so things are changing. We've heard the health commissioners from around, and certainly the one in Philadelphia that Sandy and I know well has talked about that and how much more transparent he thinks some of this will be, and we'll talk about that. But that really is my situation update because we're going to get into a lot of this with my good friend Sandy Gomberg, who is a nurse. She has a a master's of nursing and is almost a doctor of nursing. We just call her General Gomberg in, in our crew because she's just such a great leader. She has been uh, all over Philadelphia and knows probably more people in the healthcare industry in Philadelphia than anybody else in the country. She has been uh, the CEO of Temple University Hospital. I first met her in the Children's Hospital back then when we were young pups. <laughs> and then she became COO of Area Health System. And now I've met her again as the CEO of the COVID response team for the city of Philadelphia, where she got me involved. So welcome, Sandy. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Jay. Thrilled to be here. Yeah, so we're talking today really about this COVID stuff. And what was so remarkable, as I was following along the news last year, last spring, it was hitting the fan, and you did something really magical that had to do with a basketball stadium. Could you go over that (laughs) for me? 
Sure, sure. You know, I, I too remember, Jay, when uh, COVID first came out a year ago, and it was probably about six to eight weeks into the COVID surge, uh, the Philadelphia region was reaching its capacity in the hospitals. And there was grave concern that the surge would follow in our region, similar to how it had happened in New York. And the Philadelphia Department of Public Health Commissioner, Dr. Farley, and the leadership of the city of Philadelphia, the mayor and and his cabinet, decided that it was imperative that the city of Philadelphia create a surge facility. And with all of the hospitals at capacity, where, where do you go to create a surge facility? And so very creatively, we took control with the support of Temple University of a 10,000 seat basketball arena. And proceeded to turn the basketball floor into a 180-bed hospital um, called an alternate care facility, which is a level of facility distinction where you can provide health care services in a non-traditional setting outside the bricks and mortar of a hospital. And it was um, truly an amazing opportunity. Yeah, and so we didn't know a lot about COVID. We didn't know that it was not hitting kids so much. It was hitting the elderly. And man, we saw it hit our elderly really hard, especially the ones in the long-term care facilities. And what were some of the stats that stick out to you for that spring surge? Well, Jay, I think one of the really unique phenomena that happened was the seamless and unquestioned alignment across education, public offices like the Department of Public Health, private industries like a university, and healthcare industries. In order to stand up that COVID surge facility at the Leah Corus Center, I had the benefit of having 30 Temple University medical students come as volunteers to really put their shoulder in, and they were amazingly talented uh, young leaders who helped do everything from plan out the distance between the beds, assemble equipment, and help plan how we were going to deliver oxygen and drugs and food in the in the facility. We had the uh, Philadelphia Fire Department, Office of Emergency Management, and their teams on site following our lead because they normally don't stand up hospitals. We had partnerships with the hospitals to provide different services. And then certainly we had uh, private businesses, whether that was the folks who were providing security or constructing the oxygen. And in all of my 40 some years in healthcare, it was the largest and most integrated show of alignment in response to an emergency that I have ever seen. And I think at the time, We oriented over 250 individuals, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, clerical folks uh, through a very um, accelerated program in order to work at the COVID relief unit. In fact, we saw lots of uh, referrals. And what we saw on the referrals is they were individuals who came from a non-healthcare congregate living or were challenged because of homelessness. And in that recuperation from COVID, it takes a long time to recuperate from COVID. And you often need medicine and oxygen or, or insulin for a period of time. And that just wasn't able to be provided in, in the locations these individuals would normally go. It wasn't the individuals who were middle-aged people who were getting COVID who we thought would need the facility. Um, it was this very unique population. So after that facility um, was not needed any longer, we went to work in that same 
vein of education, not-for-profit hospital insight, public policy insight, and reviewed what had happened there. And you're right. What we found was that the individuals who were most disproportionately affected were those nursing home patients. And we know that nationally. There, there, there wasn't anything particularly different about Philadelphia's experience. It was the same terrible gravity that uh, every place around the, the country saw that the um, nursing homes had the least preparedness for a global pandemic that we didn't understand. They didn't do anything wrong. They they were just overwhelmed with what was happening. And so we took that really seriously. And in this fall wave, um, we opened something called a COVID relief unit. And that is a CDC distinction where you are creating um, a, a medical facility in the bricks and mortar of a medical facility where the people going there could assume that they're going to get the same standard of care as they would in their own facility. Very different than what you would expect getting in a basketball um, hospital. And so partnering with the team at Genesis, the city of Philadelphia uh, sequestered a 120-bed long-term care facility. And our team, which you are a part of, was literally the medical air traffic control team that worked with the hospitals and the nursing homes. So as soon as there was an outbreak, we had the ability to relocate COVID positive residents to our COVID relief unit to take good care of them there so that the nursing home could get ready for additional patients at the nursing home, um, or alternatively take patients who were not COVID positive and move them temporarily so that the facility could clean or reset. We know that uh, generally across the U United States, the death rate in nursing homes was 28 to 30 plus percent. While we don't have the final uh, rates for the city of Philadelphia, we know that they are dramatically, dramatically lower um, because of the work that was done with the Department of Health, helping and working with the nursing homes and setting up the COVID relief unit and not to be missed is the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania funded rapid response teams where they gave hospitals extraordinary resources. Every nursing home was adopted by a hospital in the Commonwealth. And in the city of Philadelphia, we interdigitated with those hospital teams. So when the hospital team went on site and saw that help was needed, we stepped up, created the air traffic control, and got the right level of care for each of the patients. And that was a never-seen-before level of collaboration that really cared for the citizens of Philadelphia. Yeah, that's great. And we took some of those learnings, and, and you and I talked to the state of Delaware, for instance, and, and yeah. that was really cool. And I got to say... Um, you know, I learned a lot about leadership from you, Sandy. I always do. Um, but, you know, we were talking to CMOs, the CMOs of the hospital once a week. In fact, we have that still. And you, you were clearly General Gumberg. I mean, in, in a way, it had to be that way. You know, we had to have, you, you know, you, you talk about all the stuff that went into the Lawyer Chorus Center. You did that in a week. And when we're talking about nursing homes, this has to be done quickly and fluidly. And so, you know, how do you get through the issues of insurance payment? How do you get a place that's a long-term care facility used to giving infusions of plasma for COVID positive patients, et cetera? And all that had to be incredible partnerships. So silver lining is these partnerships are there now. We're talking to all these CEOs or CMOs all getting together. What do you think about that? Do you think it's going to be long lasting? 
Yeah, I, I absolutely underscore the uh, level of collaboration across those groups and, and how what an outcome um, improvement it made. We've met with the chief nursing officers um, across the city of Philadelphia. We meet separately with the chief medical officers across the city of Philadelphia. We brief the CEOs on an as-needed basis, and we have a weekly meeting as well with the leadership from all of the insurance companies across the region. It has been unprecedented level of transparency and support where those groups individually have come together to share their part of the puzzle from their vantage point, which has been amazing, giving the health commissioner and our teams really the insight from the bedside, you know, from the decision making and medical standpoint, and then from the payer standpoint. And I'll give you um, an example. When we first started to Um, move the long-term care residents through this medical operations and coordination team. There were many concerns around families saying, you know, are we going to have to pay for this ambulance transport? Can you, is it okay? Am I going to have a pre-cert to get there? And literally because we created the the payer team, we would just alert the payer team and they would override everything and come immediately to the rescue. Um, When some of the smaller hospitals got way overfilled, we were able to connect those two chief medical officers in a heartbeat and use our Rigby teams to help get those patients to a higher level of care. And every single one of those teams has asked for continued engagement. Um, the the cross-discipline communication has been much more valuable. And if, if we take anything out of the gravity of our regional response to COVID, it is the impact of unbridled collaboration and the putting aside of competition and uh, uh, hoarding of finite resources and um, all players in means all boats boats rise. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So Sandy, one of the things I've learned in through this is um, that it, it is a healthcare emergency. COVID is a healthcare issue for all doctors, nurses, healthcare providers, respiratory therapists, and, and, and all sorts. But the people at the front line and the people that have stepped up in leadership the most have been nurses. They're the ones at the bedside. They're the ones uh, really, you know, cannot duck and cover from this disease. And they're also the ones that, you know, when we're talking about CMOs and CNOs in our leadership meetings, they're the ones that really have their finger in the pulse and the ones directing us. You're a nurse. You're, you know, you're a nurse leader. What, what are your thoughts on that? And, and maybe this has, it certainly has, I mean, I, I hold nurses in high esteem, but nothing Nothing has prepared me for how high esteem I hold them now because they really have guided us through this as leaders. Yeah, Jay, um, you know, I, um, I am a very proud Villanova University College of Nursing alum, and I will tell you that it is impossible to continue in your leadership career and not see through nursing eyes. I just can't do it. And so when we were doing the COVID surge uh, facility, I'll give you a couple of really nursey examples. We were doing the COVID surge facility and, you know, it's a big arena with lots of cots and we had boxes behind the cots to be the head wall. And we got into an incredible conversation about how the patients were going to go to the bathroom because there were nurses, right? And we pulled the nurses together and said, oh, we got to come up with a plan. So we were able to use piping and shower curtains to make make-believe privacy areas where we could put the commode in. And we were talking about this so much in front of the emergency preparedness guys. They said, wait a minute, we've got these special kind of commodes. You just go potty in it. Everything ties up as a solid in the bag. And so 
while that's not the most luxurious conversation to have, you know, seeing through nursing eyes, you know, the first thing I'm thinking about is, okay, how are they going to go to the bathroom in our big basketball arena? So there were basic things like that. There were other um, seeing through nursing eyes. Um, I knew that we needed to get as close to the quality standards that we, you hold in Demours and every hospital leader holds. And so we worked really hard around patient safety. And we put in redundancies and communication between our level because back then we couldn't go in the red zone. Like we had to separate because we didn't have enough PPE for everybody to go in the red zone. So we created um, video conferencing in other ways in order to talk with patients to make sure that their their psychosocial needs and the lighting was turned down in the basketball arena to meet their needs. When we then migrated into um, designing this around nursing home patients and realizing that you just can't write a bunch of rules on a piece of paper. You know, you, ha- you have to be able to translate those rules in meaningful ways with people who don't have tons and tons of resources and extra people hanging around. So helping p- create really unique ways to have red zones and yellow zones for the nursing home patients, always nursing led. So um, it is always my privilege. I'll tell you one other story. I've I've mentioned it before. Um, You know, I teach in the doctoral program at Villanova and I was teaching healthcare finance exactly this time last year. And I had a number of nurse leaders, both from the Philadelphia area and ones from New York and New York was battered, battered in March and April. And they would come online to, for class and they would look like they're, they were broken. And I said to one of them, like, are you, are you okay? Do you need not to be in class? And she said, no, I have to be someplace else. There so many people died today. I, I, I can't go anywhere else. And it was that next week that my phone rang and the health commissioner said, hey, Sandy, your, your name was given to me. Could you, to, could you step up? And while my husband was screaming, no, in the background, I thought, you know, these folks are on the front line. They have no choice. And they are at DEFCOM 7 crisis. And I, and I really, I really need to step up to support their efforts. So that's how seeing through nursing eyes impacted my COVID journey. Um, Let's get into a little bit about 2021. And that's all really about vaccine. And um, what are your thoughts about how it's going and where it's going to go under the Biden administration? Well, that um, ability you and I had when they needed additional help to be deployed. And we got the opportunity to go in and talk to the staff at the COVID relief um, unit. It was a very awesome experience. And I mean, awesome, like, oh my God, we, and they opened the zipper refrigerator bag and took out the vaccine. Like you took a breath because like you've been hearing about this vaccine and it was like we had a plutonium we were taking out. We were, we were holding it like it was, it was glass. And, and then to see the people come in and tears in their eyes as they rolled up their sleeves and said, please take a picture for my family. It, it pulled on your heartstrings. And then we know that there is vaccine hesitancy among healthcare providers, among different ethnic and social groups. And you and I both had opportunities to talk to staff who were incredibly frightened because because this is an unprecedented experience and really help them think through some of the reasons they were nervous and anxious and some decided to get vaccinated and some some decided to wait. I think the most critical message, Jay, that, that we could communicate to anybody who listens to this podcast is that 
everything that is possible is being done to get the vaccine to the people in the communities. The, the demand is far greater than the supply right now. Uh, the logistics are amazingly complicated. And while it is, it is really hard to ask people to be additionally patient after 12 months of nothing short of panic and worry and illness and death, we need to ask them to wait a little longer because we need to get the needles into the arms of the sickest people first, of the individuals who are older, greater than 65, greater than 75, who have cancer and heart disease and and kidney disease. And we need to ask the people who are stronger and younger to wait. We will have enough vaccine. It, it is going to take a little longer, but but we really need people to um, honor and respect the priorities that have been set forth and help those people who really need it the most get the vaccine. Sadie, I could talk to you forever, obviously, and probably will. <laughs> but I will say um, there, we do have a question from um, Ask the Incident Commander that I just want to go over because I think we both have answers to it. And that was, you know, now that the number of Nemours Associates have received both doses of the COVID vaccine, I received mine a few weeks ago, the second dose, it seems. Uh, what are you hearing about the desire to get the vaccine? So uh, you've had one dose, maybe two, Sandy. One. I yeah. What are you hearing uh, uh, in terms of, you know, how did it go? Uh, is the hesitancy melting away a little bit? Are people still excited? What do you what do you what are you hearing in, in your neck of the woods? Um, some of the preliminary and I'll say unofficial um, information is that among healthcare providers, 70 percent of the healthcare providers who are white are anxious to get the vaccine and are moving forward. Only 30 percent of the minority healthcare workers um, have come forward and are anxious to get the vaccine. So even among our colleagues in healthcare, we know that there's vaccine hesitancy. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that, right? It's brand new. It came out quickly. There are more than one. There's going to be hopefully an AstraZeneca and a Johnson & Johnson one soon in this new administration. So I think that we still have vaccine hesitancy. I am very hopeful that as teams get the second dose and they see that there aren't wild complications and everybody stayed well through it. I think that is the most important piece that we're going to see. We're anticipating um, that that will happen as we roll through these waves and that the uh, flywheel, like when we have more vaccine and there's more people in line and there aren't any any appointments, that, that supply and demand is going to it's going to encourage other people to move forward. I think too, Jay, that the um, change in the administration will bring a different level of um, transparency and information and clarity about what is and isn't possible. And I hope that that also helps to buoy the common man in getting the understanding about the vaccine and why we're taking it and um, how important it is for everybody to get it when it's their turn. I couldn't say it better than than what you did. I think, you know, we're seeing positivity. We're seeing people, you know, some some people feeling a little down for about 12 to 24 hours and then magically it stops almost like 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 the flip of a coin just quickly mm -hmm. stops. And, uh, you know, it's it, people are losing their hesitancy. I'm hoping that that will continue. And we do see the same disparity in our hesitancy here at Nemours. And, you know, we have work to do. We, we have continued work to do. And it's it's uh, it's an issue that we all recognize. Mm -hmm. so it's been great talking to you. The, the entire region thanks you for all the work you've done. Any final words for us from your leadership position or from anything uh, that you've done during this COVID event? 
I will say that uh, being a leader during this COVID event has been a humbling experience. Those of us who um, have had the privilege to do the kind of work that I've had to do, got the chance to do that voluntarily, got to do that at a level that had resources and decision-making authority that's that's generally unprecedented. And I have always been humbled and honored at the incredible burden that our colleagues at the bedside, at the front line, have, have taken on, that mantle they've taken on, because they didn't have a choice. And I think that's important to remember. And to the individuals who are listening, I'd want them to know that there's lots of people out there who made these crazy and amazing changes happen. And we need to continue to put the most vulnerable patients in the center of what we do and work towards that. And be patient. Please be patient. Sandy Gomberg is the CEO of the COVID-19 response team for the city of Philadelphia. The Nemours Champions for Children podcast is available anywhere you find podcasts and is also found on Nemours.net and the Nemours Now app. You can also ask your favorite smart speaker to play it. It's free for streaming and download. Also, please be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and fellow Nemours associates. One other small piece of news, the Nemours Champions for Children podcast has been selected as one of the top 25 children's health podcasts on the web by Feedspot. We are, in fact, number seven on that list. And that's a tribute to you, our listeners and subscribers, as well as our production team, Dr. Maureen Leffler, Dr. Jay Greenspan, Sandra Herman, Cheryl Munn, Deborah Griffin, and Peter Adebi. Learn more about the Feedspot rankings and how they're determined in the show notes for today's episode. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions in Fall River, Massachusetts. On behalf of Sandy Gomberg and host Dr. Jay Greenspan, I'm Carol Vassar. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Nemours Champions for Children COVID-19 Update Podcast. Until next time, stay safe, stay well, and thank you for all you do for the children we serve.